Old Testament reading this morning is from Exodus chapter 32. When the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, the people gathered around Aaron and said to him, come make gods for us who shall go before us. And as for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. Aaron said to them, take off the gold rings that are on the ears of your wives, your sons, and your daughters, and bring them to me. So all the people took off the gold rings from their ears and brought them to Aaron. He took the gold from them, formed it into a mold, and cast an image of a calf. And they said, these are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. When Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it, and Aaron made proclamation and said, tomorrow shall be a festival to the Lord. They rose early the next day and offered burnt offerings and brought sacrifices of well-being, and the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to revel. The Lord said to Moses, go down at once. Your people, whom you brought up out of the land of Egypt, have acted perversely. They have been quick to turn aside from the way that I commanded them. They have cast for themselves an image of a calf and have worshipped it and sacrificed to it and said, these are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. The Lord said to Moses, I have seen this people, how stiff-necked they are. Now let me alone, so that my wrath may burn hot against them, and I may consume them, and of you I will make a great nation. But Moses implored the Lord his God and said, O Lord, why does your wrath burn hot against your people, whom you brought out of the land of Egypt with great power and with a mighty hand? Why should the Egyptians say it was with evil intent that he brought them out to kill them in the mountains and to consume them from the face of the earth? Turn from your fierce wrath, change your mind, and do not bring disaster on your people. Remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, your servants, how you swore to them by your own self, saying to them, I will multiply your descendants like the stars of heaven, and all this land that I have promised I will give to your descendants, and they shall inherit it forever. And the Lord changed his mind about the disaster that he planned to bring on his people. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Our gospel reading this morning is from Luke chapter 15. Hear the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ according to Luke. Glory to you, O Lord. Now all the tax collectors and sinners were coming near to listen to him, and the Pharisees and the scribes were grumbling and saying, this fellow welcomes sinners and eats with them. So he told them this parable. Which one of you, having a hundred sheep and losing one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the wilderness and go after the one that is lost until he finds it? When he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders and rejoices. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost. Just so, I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over ninety-nine righteous persons who need no repentance. Or what woman, having ten silver coins, if she loses one of them, does not light a lamp, sweep the house, and search carefully until she finds it? When she has found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors, saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the coin that I had lost. Just so, I tell you, there is joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. This is the Gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, O Christ. Good morning. We have an interesting passage we get to talk about today um, in two parts. 
So we have one part that is the creation of an idol of this golden calf. And what is that? And what on earth are the Israelites thinking? So we have that part of the story. And then even just visually in the bulletin, because there's a paragraph gap, we see there's another part of the story. And it's this really kind of odd and perplexing and beautiful and interesting and full of emotion conversation that is between Moses and God and what is going on in that case. As always, because one of my all-time favorite questions to ask at the beginning of every time we're talking about the text is to say, where are we? Right? And so where, where are we? I mean, physically, geographically, we're at the base of Mount Sinai. We arrived there last week, and we're going to stay there for the rest of the time because everything else that happens in Exodus happens at Sinai. And one of the things to remember is while we're in this context, not only is it a barren, dry, harsh kind of landscape, but it is not a built environment. Right? So we don't have statues, we don't have buildings, we don't have things in our environment that are telling us about the culture in which everyone is existing. It's almost, it's, I don't want to say a blank landscape because it's not blank, but it's not giving you cultural references, which makes this a really good place for God to be inviting his people into a relationship and then inviting them to be shaped by him and by his character and what he wants for his people. So we're at Sinai. Now also, where are we literarily? What's going on in Exodus? Like we traced this enormously big and beautiful story of redemption. And we saw God dealing with the hard heart of Pharaoh and who or what it means for God to be a redeemer, to pull his people out, to confront these social injustices, and then to even confront the spiritual problems of the way that Egypt has structured their society. So God has confronted that, brought his people out, and with this great display of mercy, he then invites them into relationship. And they agree, and they enter into a relationship with him. And now, after this redemption, after this sign of mercy, after this invitation into covenant, now comes the ten words, or now comes the law, or the teachings. And that's where we were last week. And you may remember when Chris was teaching last week that he was talking about how we have these ten commandments as almost a prologue for the rest of the covenant code, these other laws that are going to come. And it's not law that is constraining you. It's law it better thought of as a gift. This was God's instructions for how to live as fulfilled human beings closer to the way that he has designed his people to be. So this great gift. But all of this starts in Exodus 20 with God stating again, I am the Lord. I am Yahweh your God who brought you up out of Egypt. Because of that, then, I'm inviting you to be shaped by me so that you can be a kingdom of priests, so you can go on mission with me because the mission that God has is for the whole world and it's this great big huge mission. And then we skipped a bunch of chapters. Whoa. 
We skipped a bunch of chapters. Um, a little bit unfortunate, some of you may be going, whew, because it's a whole bunch of instructions about building the tabernacle. So you get tabernacle construction, you get how are we going to anoint the priests? What is the role of the priests? What are they going to wear? In the construction of the tabernacle, we have the construction of the holy place and then the Ark of the Covenant with the wings of the cherubim over which God is going to seat. So this almost earthly throne for the presence of God. And when we go, why is it? that we go through all of these instructions. And at the end of chapter 29, actually God says this a couple times. He says it in 25, but I'm gonna read from 29. And this is at the end of some of these instructions. And he says, I will dwell among the people of Israel and will be their God. And they shall know that I am the Lord their God who brought them up out of the land of Egypt, that I might dwell among them. I am Yahweh the Lord, their God. It's so, it's incredible, I think, this statement, because we began and we ended this statement with God's determination to dwell in the midst of his people. And so we pay attention to the details and the design of this built space, the tabernacle, because it's showing how persistent God is to live right in the midst of the people. And it's this beautiful vision of who God is, this God Almighty, the creator God, who wants to somehow be right in the midst of a people that have nothing to offer him back, but their worship and their service and their willingness to participate with him. So we get to chapter 32, and we, the readers, who've been hanging out with Moses and God at the top of Mount Sinai, we're just so full of hope for what might be. And the heights of Sinai give us this vision of everything that could be the potential of God dwelling in the midst of his people. And then we get to chapter 32 and we crash down into the cruel reality of human existence at the base of Mount Sinai. And we see the human frailty of God's people, which we've already met if we're really honest. Even in chapters 19 and 20, this frailty of the people, they sense their own inability to stand before this power that is just too awesome to comprehend. And even at that moment when they're feeling distinctly how frail they are, they ask Moses to go in front of them and to be their intercessor in the face of this great and amazing power. But with chapter 32, Moses has been gone. We've been with Moses, but the people can't see Moses. He's up in the cloud at the top of Mount Sinai, and they don't hear, and they don't yet know this great hopeful vision of God wanting to be in their midst. And their memory fades, and they start to not quite know how to interpret the events that they have just lived through. And so they go to Aaron, the leaders of the people, and they say, we would like to have gods that we can see. There's something about needing a tangible thing to point to and say, this must be our God. There's something dangerous about that too, because once you put a shape to that God, it's a God you can carry and you can manipulate into the situation you want. 
So here we have a group of people, their leader, they have asked this person, Moses, to be their intercessor between them and God. And they talk about Moses as the one who has brought them out of Egypt and the one who is going to lead them into their land of promise. And they don't know where Moses is. And they say, this Moses, the man who brought us up from the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. And so Aaron, make a God for us. And then we're all a little bit perplexed over Aaron's willingness to participate in this, but he creates, he gathers this gold, the gold that they had taken from the Egyptians when they left, and they contribute to all of like these great assets that they brought from Egypt. They contribute that and Aaron turns it into a calf. And then the people or the leaders of the people turn to everyone else and say, these are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. And then Aaron, and again, it's hard to kind of, we can't ever get into the headspace of people that are in these narratives. Aaron is participating in these events in what it is that the people are calling for. And here, it's a little confusing. We don't know, is Aaron trying to soften this idol worship? Because he then says, well, I'm going to build an altar. Uh, nope. Oh, tomorrow shall be a festival to Yahweh. So he's bringing back this personal name of God. So I'm going to build it. We're going to have a festival to the Lord or to Yahweh. They rose early the next day. They offered burnt offerings and sacrifices of well-being. And then the people sat down to eat and drink. And at this moment, we think, oh, that's just like in chapter 24, when they agreed to be in covenant with God and then they make a covenant, they agree twice to agree to this covenant, and then they sit down and they have a huge feast before God. And now we have an idol, we have Aaron, we have sacrifices, and they sit down to feast before this God, except this feasting turns into revelry. And so all of us should feel this sense of incredible dread now we can kind of explain some of this in terms of like, what is this calf and what is going on? Why a bull, all of these kinds of things. Um, in terms of wanting to have something visual, because remember we're in Sinai, we don't have a built visual environment yet. So this becomes something tangible that they can anchor their hopes on in terms of their ability to get through this stark and harsh wilderness place. But the problem is, right, I mean, and even in ancient Near East, when they created these kinds of statues, and especially the statues of animals like bulls, they weren't always infused, or the people didn't always think of these statues as being infused with the actual character of the god, as much as they were the visual representation of the god spirit coming down and dwelling on top. It's almost the vehicle that carries that presence of that God around. Now, we again, we the readers of the text go, oh no, 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 no. Because we know God has already given instructions for the Ark of the Covenant. This beautiful Ark that is going, that has the angels that are on top, this seat of judgment on top of which God's spirit dwells. 
And so we look at this and we're like, oh, they're creating an anti-arc. And so now we have many problems with the story because from the beginning, God has been saying, I'm going to do these great things. I am going to confront the hard heart of Pharaoh. I am going to confront the injustices so that Pharaoh knows who I am, so that you know who I am, so that the Egyptians know who I am. And it's all about getting to know this character of God and then being invited into this covenant relationship. And we look at the people here and we're like, oh, you don't know who your God is, do you? And the problem is because they're so determined to create a shape for this God, when in the Exodus story, the next phase of the story is to be shaped by this God, to be his people and reflect himself into the world. And if the people have created their own God to satisfy their own anxiety, who shapes their identity and their story of who they're going to be? And that becomes a problem. And so we could almost just stop there and go, okay, what are we worshiping right now? And again, this is, I've said it before, there really is, these are like the hard part of preaching is, um, I come not just on Sunday and think through a text. I'm thinking through it for a very long time. And although I try really hard to keep it theological and logical, like how am I going to teach it, it is inevitable for the spotlight of Scripture to go plunging around in the deep crevices of my heart. And it's highly uncomfortable. And I've been rather grumpy most of the week. <laughs> so I'd like to invite you into that. <laughs> uh, but really, right, the question here and the question I've been asking myself is, what do I worship? Like when I feel like God is distant and is not responding to me, which if I'm honest, is a great majority of the time, what do I turn to? What do you turn to? And this is, we could probably come up with a huge long list, right? Because the reality is we all deal with that anxiety in different ways. The anxiety of feeling different, of not knowing if we're going to be protected and led and guided. And so there are all kinds of things we turn to, any number of addictions that we form. And the problem is that will shape the story of who we are as God's people. And so when we form addictions, we're finding solace and comfort in something else that actually cannot give that same kind of comfort, guidance, protection, and leadership that we need. Career becomes a really easy one, except the markers of a good career, of having arrived at being successful, at being an expert in your field, those tend to migrate around just a little bit out of touch. And money is one, and we were just talking about money and stewardship of money, right? But there also this pursuit of money, of feeling secure, what is secure enough, what is having enough. And the thing is, the story that changes to tell us, or that changes us, is who gets to receive my priority? How am I going to spend my time? And is it worth it to interact with different people in specific ways? 
right? So we have idols that we form, and they're not always golden calves. They're a lot more invisible and therefore a little bit harder sometimes to identify. But just sit with it for a week. It'll get uncomfortable. I promise. And in our story, right, we see that all of this worship of something else that is changing the story of who the Israelites are going to be ends in this revelry that gets out of hand. And we see Moses, and in fact, if we were to fast forward outside of our passage, when Moses does leave Mount Sinai, and he goes down and he collects Joshua, who's partway up the mountain, and they can hear the sound of something happening down below among the Israelites. And Joshua goes, oh no, it's the sign of war. And Moses goes, oh no, we don't hear signs of war. What we hear is singing. Now, the last time in the book of Exodus when the people burst out in song was at the end of passing through the Sea of Reeds and in seeing this redemption, great redemption of God and everyone burst into song. And so we have this people bursting into song, but it's not based on something that God has done. It's based on a story that they've created. This is a capital punishment. And this takes us into the next segment of our text. And in this next half of the text, we're actually looking at a brand new characteristic of Moses. We've seen Moses as a prophet, and we've seen the development of what this role of a prophet is, as being the mouthpiece for God, of the one who goes and speaks about and identifies and confronts injustice to say this is what actually God is wanting instead of what is in reality. But now we're seeing another very, very interesting and necessary part of this role of a prophet. And this one is trying to deal with the complexity of understanding this God who is deeply and richly merciful and a God who is deeply and richly full of justice. And these two parts of this character of God, sometimes we start to see this confrontation. And so what do we do with it? And the prophet is going to play a significant role here. So then we have to go, okay, so how are we gonna read a text in which this infinite creator God can go into conversation with a human and change his mind based on a logical rhetoric based like from this particular prophet. So we can think about, and I think sometimes we often do, think of God as this absolute, steadfast, non-changing entity. But when we think of God in that way, God tends to be distant, kind of absent. We can also think of God the way that he's portrayed in this text and actually in lots of other very, very confusing texts in the whole Bible. As one who is relational, and in being relational is purposefully forming not only communication, but friendship and intimacy with a human. So what is what does that mean for God to be relational and to be intimate and to reveal his plans and then to be open to conversation? So there's danger in us always trying to present God as this absolute steadfast non-changing entity. 
Um, we could talk about God then uh, with a power that is absolute, with judgment that is absolute, with love that is absolute. But you will always get to the point where when that love is challenged, when that love is frustrated, then we turn into absolute anger. And this is where the role of the prophet can step in. Because now we have the prophet who can not only speak justice, who can turn to the people and say, this is how you need to change. This is God's will. I'm the mouthpiece for God. But it is also a person who instead of turning to talk to the people can turn and talk to God and go, God, the justice that you're sending this way, the anger that is directed at your people while being merited, uh, let's just deflect that away from the people for just a bit. And so the role of a good prophet, and we see this in Abraham, we see it here with Moses, we see it in Isaiah and in Jeremiah, all of these great prophets are prophets that go, God, yes, your justice, your sense of anger for how the people have broken this covenant with you, this is well merited, but please remember your mercy. And so when God is portraying not just the merciful side of himself, but when God is portraying the justice side, the prophet, a good prophet, stops and says, pause and just wait and remember mercy. And so how does this play out in our conversation between God and Moses? Well, we see God right away is distancing himself relationally from the people, right? Because the Lord says to Moses, go down at once. Your people whom you brought out of the land of Egypt are doing all these things, right? There's a backing up and backing away of the relationship. And God explains to Moses what is going on. And it's almost like there's this pause here because it starts with the Lord said to Moses, and then he tells them everything that they've done. And at verse nine, we go, and the Lord said to Moses, and we're like, Moses hasn't spoken yet. But it's, it's almost this like pregnant pause between these two verses where you're, you sit in the horror of what's going on. And then God is going to rejoin the conversation. And he tells Moses, I have seen this people, how stiff-necked they are. Now, let me alone so that my wrath may burn hot against them. And this portion, this now let me alone, is almost this interesting little part of the conversation because it's inviting a reaction from Moses. God could just go and slaughter the people or execute his anger, execute his judgment. But he says... Let me alone, which means now Moses has a choice because Moses can go, yes, and please, there they are, go execute judgment, or he can stand there and say, no, wait, hold on, wait just a moment. And so there is almost this characteristic of God that is inviting Moses to interact with him and to intercede on behalf of God's people. And Moses does. And Moses starts with remember. Remember the relationship because these are your people who you brought out, right? Let's just remember that. Remember your reputation with the Egyptians. And remember that you made a promise that you cannot break. 
And this promise was made to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, that you would be the one who would take their descendants into the land of promise. And the Lord changes his mind. And that's the end of our passage, where we see um, Moses saying, remember mercy, and he's deflecting God's anger. And we see this building relationship almost between God and Moses. When Moses is super angry, God goes in and soothes him. And now God is really angry and Moses goes in and soothes him. And if we were to say, what would be the complete opposite to someone like Moses, who is actually inhabiting this role of a really good prophet? And we could go, well, there is a story of a prophet who at the oncoming anger and justice of God said, and I'm out, please slaughter them. That would be Jonah. We talked about Jonah in our summer series, the mixtape summer series, where Jonah fully knows that God is full of compassion and is making the distinct decision not to intercede on behalf of the people because he didn't like those people and he wanted more than anything to see God's justice on the Assyrians. Now, this is the end of our passage, and it's not the end of the negotiations between God and Moses. This continues on through the end of this chapter and into chapter 33. And, you know, as one who likes to assign homework to you, I don't know if anyone ever does it, but I, I will just continue to give it. Um, go read the entire interaction because God does change his mind here in terms of the immediate wrath and judgment against his people. But we, the reader, know that God wants to dwell, or at least stated, he wants to dwell in the midst of his people and go with his people through the wilderness into the land. And God has not yet changed his mind on not going with his people. And so in the negotiations, we see Moses continuing to persist, not just please don't be angry at them right now, but we are nothing unless we go with you. We are nothing unless we are shaped by you. We are nothing unless we are participating with you in mission. And so we have to go with you. And so you have to read this whole conversation together. But even then, Moses is going to say, the sin of the people is great. And without God's justice being fully executed, what do we do with the sin of the people that still seems to be this black mark against them? And Moses, in this negotiation, tells God, you're just going to have to bear with us. Bear us up and carry us through the wilderness. And God agrees to lift up and carry their sin and their rebellion. And so we get this amazing picture of a merciful God who is willing to bear their sin and delay the punishment for this sin. But at what point do we get the actual getting rid of the sin part? Right? And there's a whole development that we could do through the Hebrew Bible for us uh, celebrating in this Christian space we would go, this is something that points so drastically and necessarily to Jesus. And through Jesus, God's son, we see God going, my justice must happen. My mercy must happen. They're going to happen together in my son. 
and in my son who is then going to die and be resurrected in order to get rid of sin for all people and all humanity in all time. And so in God, we're going to see this great, or in Jesus, we see this great act of justice and mercy. And for us, this means that we get to celebrate this Eucharist meal. And that when we get up to come forward, then we are recognizing it is only through this mercy and also justice of God that we are saved. And we come forward and we remember the Exodus, like the very, very historic one, the Israelite one, but the greatest one in Jesus. And what does this Exodus mean? which comes with it the necessary question of how does that change my story? How is that informing who I am? Because the other gods we place up in our lives will change and shape your story in a particular way. This table is supposed to be changing your story in a particular way, shaping your identity to be God's people, who reflect God the way God wants to be reflected into the world around us. Will you pray with me? Holy, righteous, beautiful, amazing God. One whose love and grace we cannot fully comprehend. One whose justice terrifies us and is also a source of great hope when we look at the injustices in the world. To you, thank you for an opportunity to explore your scripture, explore the way that you have interacted with your people, to then read the story of your people as a great warning for ourselves. How is it once we've been redeemed, what happens when we choose other things to be more important? And when we choose other things to shape our story instead of who you are. And today, may we just be mindful of coming back and reorienting ourselves to your story, to who you are, to your priorities. And then may we head out into our week being willing to not just think about how we would like to choose you in that way, but to actually live in such a way that our lives are showing who you are to our neighbors and our community in Philadelphia. And in Jesus' name we pray, amen.